You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. We're going to begin our panel discussion on liturgy now. My name is Jonathan Welch. I'm a worship pastor at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, but really all you need to know about me is that I'm excited to be here and play host for this little panel discussion on liturgy tonight. We have a fantastic panel with Charlie Hall, Latifah Phillips, Zach Hicks, and Mike Cosper. Um, I'll actually let you guys share a little more about your context as we kind of get into the panel discussion tonight. But maybe it's just a good kind of starting point. Even the word liturgy might not be a common word that we all use even in our ministries. And so maybe let's start like real broad in general. How do you describe liturgy? Where do we start with this whole discussion? In a brief panel. So, so liturgy is, you know, the easiest way to talk about it is it's the order of service. It's what are you going to do? What's the plan? Um, the word typically refers to the, you know, traditionally refers to the work of the people. And as worship leaders, it's a great concept because it reframes what we think about when we think about our role as worship leaders um, and, and worship services themselves. Uh, the contemporary model basically says, here's the platform we're going to do something and we want you to, you know, follow along. When we think about worship in terms of liturgy, in terms of it being the work of the people, it's this idea that our responsibility is to help you, the congregation, do what, you're, what you need to do as worshipers when you come to the church. Um, so, so every church has a liturgy. They have a plan. There's something that they're going to do. Um, even if the plan is turn on the lights and see what happens, um, that's the plan. Um, but, you know, and traditionally there is sort of, there is a tradition of liturgy that the church has done for, for a long, long time, and it's evolved and all of this, but there are certain sort of essential elements that I think would, we would say were consistent across a lot of traditions. Maybe just take a minute, you know, for each one of you guys and share a little bit about the context within which you serve, and if you use a liturgy, what does that look like? Charlie wants to go first. I'll, uh, I'll go first. Uh, I'm, I, I live in Oklahoma City. I'm at a, um, a uh, reformed church. Uh, a majority of us would also say that we're charismatics. Um, and um, we do have a liturgy, and it's, it's evolving over and over. We, we probably have a basic liturgy right now where there's you know, there's a call to worship, there's a confession assurance, um, on and on through the Lord's Supper and the benediction. And I'm still growing in this area, um, but uh, our liturgies are basically the way that we're trying to form Christ in people. I, I read the, um, the passage where it's, it says um, the people are tossed back and forth and they need these anchors to hold them in. And so I started thinking of liturgy as a way to help, you know, people not be so tossed back and fro and they at least have a, a weekly anchor to come in and hang on to and have Christ formed in them. Um, I travel mostly and I play in all different kinds of churches and spaces and conferences. And so um, when I think about liturgy 
for me and what I do, I try to bring that practice wherever I go. And so whenever I'm ushering people um, and we are worshiping God together, um, kind of similar to what Charlie was saying, I love to acknowledge God's holiness and magnificence and greatness. I love to then have us confess our sin together and then our pardon of sin. And then like you said, on and on, you know, that we get to praise God for his goodness in that. And then maybe we have a focus piece that's significant to the year and um, one of the things our band did is we walked through the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, Advent through Easter. And the way that I like to think about liturgy for myself is having that anchor that we go back to in a rhythm. And, you know, as we form as adults, we realize that like the exercise, exercise is a good rhythm for our body. Eating well is a good rhythm for our nutrition. Sleeping well is a good rhythm for our brain and our creativity. And it's the idea of having a spiritual rhythm and anchor in a practice we come back to continually again and again that kind of holds us steadfast to the truth and the goodness of God and his gospel um, has been really helpful for me to think of it in that way and in that context. So. I'm Southern Baptist by blood, grew up in that and ordained as a Presbyterian minister and I serve in an Episcopal church in downtown Birmingham, Alabama. So I'm like really confused. Um, and this church follows the Book of Common Prayer the one produced in 1979 by the Episcopal Church with all its blessings and, and all its curses. Uh, and it's pretty thickly uh, verbose, lots of words that we walk through interspersed with hymns. In our current setting on Sunday mornings, we do no one song back to back because the songs serve and are inserted into the liturgy, which is strange for me because I've never been in a context quite like that. Um, but I'd say it generally has those same contours and rhythms that you're talking about, just a lot through words and prayers and physical actions, like kneeling and, and things like that. So I served, uh, until this year, I served at Sojourn Church here in Louisville. Um, same kinds of rhythms, same kinds of practices, same kinds of ideas in terms of having these, you know, having this repetition. Um, I always think about Ron Reinstra has this story in his book, Worship Words, where he says, this kid came up to the pastor after the service one day, and he said, hey, how come um, every single week you say the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever? And the pastor says, because of that, you know, the kid knows it. Um, it's this idea that we internalize these, these, these phrases, these prayers, these concepts um, that become those anchors, you know, those, those things, because we, they're internalized, we can fall back on them when we doubt or struggle or have questions. Um, for us, briefly, we started off without, you know, without any connection to any kind of traditional forms, uh, these structures that they're, they're describing here. Um, it was more of a sort of contemporary church. Our liturgy was you play some fast songs and then you play some slow songs and then after the, the sermon you play some slow songs and then you play some fast songs. Um, and... <laughs> We came around to kind of a, a gospel-centered vision for ministry and came up with this idea, well, what if the service sort of was structured in a way that we retold the story of the gospel? You know, God is holy, we're sinners, Jesus saves, Jesus sends. And uh, thought we were very clever. And it was like, you know, Chesterton says, tells the story of somebody who comes back to the, the orthodoxy of the church. They're, they're like a yachtsman who sails off, you know, to go discover the new world and, and doesn't realize that he's landed back in England. And so he sees it all new again. That's kind of our story. We, we, we discovered liturgy uh, in this really back, backwards kind of way. So I'm actually glad that you, you know, kind of landed there with that, with that whole story because I feel like a common objection for some people 
to using a liturgy in worship is that it might not make sense to people unless you explain all the dots. So is it still valuable even if we don't explain every little nuance of everything that we put into planning a liturgy? Yeah, uh, I do. I think that uh, I'm trying to teach this to our church right now. I'm teaching a Sunday school course to our, our congregants who have been living with the same liturgy for their whole lives if they've grown up Episcopalians or Anglicans. And one of the things I try to say is that is a good liturgy ultimately uh, works like clear glass, not stained glass. It's meant to be seen or looked through, not looked at. And I think a lot of times for us who are in these fancy liturgical traditions, um, a big litmus test is when people are walking out of the service, what are they in awe of? Are they, are they saying, man, what a beautiful language. I love it. It's so artistic and so gorgeous. And wasn't the choir great? You know, it's like, wasn't the band great? And if they're walking out saying those kinds of things, worship has become stained glass worship rather than clear glass worship. And a good liturgy helps you to see through it to Jesus, helps you to um, be able to see directly who he is and what he's done in the best ways. And I think when that happens, you don't need it to be explained. Although I do think outside the context of worship, it's a really great place to help help people over the hurdles of some of the questions that they have so that you can go back to it and it's a little bit clearer, like the smudges are taken off. I was going to add too, like um, f- before, before our, our church started doing uh, a more organized liturgy, I've been a, I've been a part of like a hyper-charismatic church and, and then an emergent church and, um, and then I had a period of time where I didn't go to church and then I went to an Episcopal church and then I ended up at the church where I'm at now. And so there was lots of viewpoints along the way. And um, um, I think what, what people start to miss is, um, is they start to feel the cold science of like a liturgy as opposed to what any liturgy is supposed to lead us to is the um, experience of Jesus and his presence and the mystery of that. And then um, like the rehearsing of the gospel and just remembering that. And then we try to calculate it out and lay it out like a plan. And people start to experience the, you know, just the architecture or the science of it. And they don't always get to Jesus. But when, when the worship leaders and the liturgists and the pastors and everyone's standing up there kind of owning the, owning the moment, they don't feel the liturgy the same. Like if, if I lead through a, conf- a confession and assurance and I'm literally confessing, you know, that I'm, I'm one of you, you're one of me, we're confessing our sin, I'm tired of the burden, I need this burden off me, together we're gonna confess the sin, and then we're just gonna, with tears in our eyes, receive the assurance of what Jesus Christ has done, then it doesn't feel so much like a cold, scientific, architectural, theological plan. It starts to feel like the freedom of the gospel in Jesus, but it is a plan. So we're on the campus of a Baptist seminary, and especially for some in the free church tradition that actually might not be as familiar with this way of planning worship, what would you say are the benefits of actually using a liturgy and planning worship? I think that the benefit to the plan and the preparation and the practice of liturgy, it would be like, and it's not always like this, and I think you can sometimes, you don't always have to do liturgy to experience God. I think everybody agree with that but um it'd be like coming in at the climax of a movie that maybe like 
Like if you were just came in at the end of Schindler's List, that's like a, I'm not, no spoiler alerts here, it's been out a long time. And, um, and you see them reunited. It's still really beautiful. I know, I'm sorry, Charlie. Um, it's really beautiful and it's moving. <laughs> Maybe in the scene in itself, it's beautiful and it's moving. But if you start at the beginning of the film and go all the way through, the power of the ending is so much more palpable and you can kind of feel it in your bones and in your soul. And so I think that the, the preparation and the journey that liturgy can take us on kind of can make those moments more rich in the sense of we're preparing the soul with the practice and the repetition of going back to who God is and back to who we are before him, you know, continually, like weekly or daily or whatever it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and I used the word practice there, and that was what, what I wanted to, to point out is that so much of what we do in the liturgy and in, in, in the worship of the church is, is not purely meant for those moments, but meant to prepare us for all of life. And so by having, by planning, the virtue of, of having something that, that expresses a range of emotion and all of this is that you equip people with language for those, those crisis moments, you know, back to what I was saying earlier, those encounters with death. I'll never forget a friend of mine texting me um, the night his, his mother passed away. He texted a group of his, his friends and it, you know, he, he said, um, in the text, he said, my mother's, um, my mother gave up her failing body, or my mother resigned her failing body today, um, which is a line from an Isaac Watts hymn that we had been singing in our church. And, you know, it was this beautiful moment to me as a, as a pastor to recognize that in that moment, um, when, when so often, a moment like that, we're, we're at, at a loss for words, uh, Isaac Watts provided him with language to to express something hopeful in that moment. So. I just, real quickly, I, had a, I was a youth minister for six or so years, and I had a kid that I discipled through that six years, all through junior high and through high school. And uh, of course he disappeared after high school for about five, 10 years, and, and I saw him and he's, he had just gotten out of prison, so I did a really good job. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> really invested in his heart. But he did say this. Um, he said, hey, the whole time I was in prison, which is funny every time I say it, the whole time I was in prison, I sang the songs that you taught us those six years. And uh, so that reminded me of the, the weight that we carry in the songs. Like when people get in those troubled moments, whatever it is, addiction, prison, um, any kind of, you know, getting derailed in life, um, they what pops up is what they've been memorizing and what they've been connecting to. So hopefully I was, hopefully I was teaching some decent songs besides knocking on heaven's door, but um, by Axl Rose, not by Axl Rose really. I think we're just gonna listen to Charlie talk all night. Um, what advice would you guys have for a worship leader that might be here at this conference or listening to the live stream who who's really interested in this topic now as a result of our panel, but they might be in a church context that's not used to a liturgy or that whole, or that whole process. Any advice on like steps to take as the worship leader in that context? Re read a chapter in my book that I just wrote. <laughs> um. There's a chapter in there called The Worship Pastor's Liturgical Architect. Um, and uh, what I try to argue for is, is to maybe 
our field of play as worship leaders a lot of times in our churches is the song set. And so to be able to think through how that song set can mirror that gospel story and journey and the topics. And we often within that song set have an opportunity to pray over or before our people or even offer words of uh, admonition and things like, like Michael wonderfully did tonight. And to be able to use those spots as uh, planned but an extemporaneously felt opportunity to guide people through a certain journey in that song set in a way that helps people to think lofty thoughts about God and then confess your sin to God and then sing about the gospel um, as a way of taking that song set through a journey so that you sacrifice maybe nothing about what is beautiful and strong about the way your, your current liturgy is structured with this big block of songs and kind of this open experiential moment. The only thing I'd, I'd tag on to that would be just move slowly. Don't feel like you've got to, you know, change everything this Sunday um, if, if this is interesting to you, because um, that will go terribly. It will blow up in your face. Um, your pastors will pull you aside and say, what's wrong with you? What have you done? Um, every church has a tradition, and you have to respect that tradition, um, even if that tradition's, you know, just five, ten years old. Um, so move real slowly. Introduce introduce one new element. You know, if, if your church isn't praying a prayer of confession, the first time you do that, people won't know what to do with it. Um, because, because they're probably there and, they're, and they're, you've, you've shaped and formed their experience in such a way that they're expecting a certain kind of positivity. So when you say, let's acknowledge the darkness within us and the, not, the darkness in the world, that's a, that's a heavy, that's a heavy punch um, for people who aren't ready for it. So just move really slowly. That would be my... I was going to say too, and just be really sensitive to the culture and traditions of your people. And it's okay to get creative and discover a liturgy that is unique to your body and can still walk through those sentiments, but in a manner that reflects who they are and how they relate to who God is. And I would probably add just like, this may be more ethereal, but you know, we've gone through the last 20 years of worship leading and when we, when we can't find out our, our voice or who we are, we start to emulate. And I think initial emulation is okay because you're learning from someone. But I think when you swing from tree to tree, trying to emulate, trying to find yourself, trying to find your voice in the church and try to get your church to tell you that you're okay inside of what you're doing and what you're singing, then you're, you're gonna chase your tail for your whole life. I think if you can stand as the son or the daughter um, that Jesus has made you to be and you know, stand in, in the songs and in the liturgy and, and uh, in submission to your, to, to your pastor and become the things that Jesus is calling you up to be, I think it just changes everything. Emulation will always over and over leave you um, faceless and voiceless and you just scratching and crawling for the next thing. Something that I think is a common thread between what all four of you have said is it seems like a good first step would be after we have the awareness of this to just have intentionality in terms, in terms of what you can plan and what you can order to think intentionally through those things. Would you agree with that? Maybe a final question. We only got a few minutes left, but are there any other resources you know, that you guys would say have, have actually influenced you or things that you would want to recommend to our audience? 
Zach Hicks, Zach book, Hicks the worship called pastor. The worship pastor. <laughs> He's recently written a book that you can pick up. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. That's so weird. And Mike Cosper's two, Rhythms Two great books. Two great well. books that have really shaped me and actually... Finally, somebody mentioned my book. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> that book too. <laughs> um, Brian Chappell's book called Christ-Centered Worship, uh, the first hundred pages, opened his survey of the history of Christian worship across traditions and being able to discern a gospel shape was huge for me. And then James K.A. Smith's dense book, Desiring the Kingdom, which is wonderfully more concise in his, his book called uh, You Are What You Love, um, was really helpful in understanding the spirituality of the liturgy in the sense of its formational effects, which convinced me of its power. Um, a really helpful book, uh, just to piggyback on that, another one is The Worship Source Book. It's, it's kind of this treasure trove of um, liturgy resources with, with prayers for each of these movements, um, kind of in the traditional liturgy. And um, um, another book just to, to think through where this stuff comes from, it's like the classic, is Robert Weber's Worship Old and New. Um, and he really takes you through where this stuff comes from, even into looking at Jewish worship in the diaspora um, during the Second Temple era. Um, and how the, the, the first century church really adopted practices from there that in many ways are a, a common thread throughout church history. It's really a, a remarkable book. Charlie Latifa, anything at all to recommend? Those are, those are all incredible books. Wor uh, worship, worship by the Book um, has been a, a good resource. And, um, man, there's, there's, there's so many, but those are... Those were all very influential for me. Panelists, thank you guys for being here.